Kevin Dawson is Associate Professor of History at the University of California at Merced and the author of Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora. Published by Penn Press, it is the definitive study of traditional West African relationships with water, oceans, rivers, and lakes. As Dawson reveals, long before the dawn of transatlantic slavery, West Africans were excellent swimmers, divers, canoeists, and yes, surfers. Dawson is the winner of the prestigious Harriet Tubman Prize, given by the Lapita Center for the Historical Analysis of Transatlantic Slavery at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. This book is eye-opening, it is corrective, it is seminal, and I am certain you will enjoy this conversation. This is how we recollect. on behalf of your students, on behalf of readers, and on behalf of future scholars who are going to build upon your work. Thank you for doing this book. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the, appreciate the recognition. I want to read something that may surprise some listeners and may even shock some listeners. You write... From the 15th through the late 19th century, the swimming and underwater diving abilities of African-descended peoples regularly surpassed those of Westerners. Most white people could not swim. Those who could were an expert. Africans perfected variants of the crawl, concluding that its alternate overarm stroke and fast scissors kicks, which make it the strongest and swiftest style, was the proper method. Nearly every white traveler was amazed by Africans' fluencies. In 1455, Venetian merchant adventurer Alavis de Caramosto relayed that those living by the Senegal River are, quote, the most expert swimmers in the world. Other travelers agreed and routinely claimed that Africans were better swimmers than Europeans. Dutchman Peter de Maurice described Gold Coast Africans' crawl during the 1590s, writing that they, quote, can swim very fast, generally easily outdoing people of our nation in swimming and diving. Impressed white people frequently compared African-descended peoples to marine creatures, tritons, and mermaids, often proclaiming them amphibious. Can you unpack that? That is huge. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think one thing to realize is that Europeans especially Europeans, Northern Europeans, had largely stopped swimming during the Middle Ages. They had beliefs that, you know, if you, if you immersed your body in water, that you would get sick. They believed that the body was actually made up of four elements, solid, liquid, heat, and cold. And that if you, again, if you immersed yourself in water, you'd get too much liquid. And so therefore, that's why European doctors would bleed people or put leeches on people to drain that off. And they thought that was, you know, water was one of the causes of like dysentery, cholera, bubonic plague, things like that. So they largely had stopped swimming by about the the 12th, 13th century. Uh, Africans, on the other hand, you know, if you, if you look at a map of Africa, you can understand that Africa is a continent, Western Africa, the, the Atlantic coast, right, from Senegal in the north all the way down to Angola is dominated by water. 
I mean, there's thousands of miles of coastline. There's massive rivers that would put the Mississippi and the Ohio River to shame. I mean, we're talking about rivers that are four, five, six miles wide. And so, and then lakes and lagoons and all of these things. And so in order to benefit from their environment, Africans realized that they needed to learn how to be not just proficient surface swimmers, but also expert underwater divers. And so many of these rivers and lakes are also incredibly deep. And so there's, you know, accounts of Africans diving well over 100 feet deep to recover items that had fallen off of ships or, or whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, so Europeans, they recognize this as they're sailing into, into sub-Saharan Africa beginning in 1444 with the Portuguese. And that quote by Alvisa de Caramosto, I mean, while he said Africans on the Senegal River are the most expert swimmers in the world, you know, every place that the Europeans stopped, they were like, no, 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 these people are the best swimmers in the world or these people. So you get that, that same impression made over and over again along the coast. And then as Europeans were really allowed to travel inland because your Africans controlled the coast and they typically did not let Europeans into the interior. And so it's not until the 1800s that Europeans actually are able to, to begin to penetrate the interior. And they say the same thing about Africans living. I mean, you name it on the interior. I mean, as far inland as, as Timbuktu or Goa or Jene, you know, that are, that are on, you know, hundreds of miles of it inland on the cusp of, of kind of sub-Saharan Africa and the Sahara Desert. And, and I, I'd also elaborate, I mean, one of the things that I found in my research and I mentioned in the book is Europeans, they enslave Africans because they realize they have these swimming and underwater skills and they bring them to the Americas um, to serve as uh, salvage divers, as pearl divers, as conch divers, sponge divers, and, and in other capacities that we can get to. But in doing so, you have Africans on aboard ships and smaller vessels with Europeans. And whenever a ship sank, the outcome became predictable in that the Africans swam and lived and the white people drowned unless an African saved them. I mean, it was always, that's always what happened. And so, I mean, you see that all the way into the late 1800s, these kind of comments about African swimming, and then, you know, what I said about the shipwrecks. Observers, including Benjamin Franklin, referenced the breaststroke as the, quote, ordinary or white method. White people became averse to the crawl, also called the freestyle or Australian crawl, because it generated splashing, and they felt swimming should be, quote, smooth and gentle. The crawl was judged savage, while the breaststroke, which was relatively basic, was deemed refined and civilized. During the 1830s, George Catlin documented Amerindian culture in print, drawings, and paintings, revealing how whites appreciated the crawl's speed while dismissing it as uncivilized. In North Dakota, he wrote, the mode of swimming is quite different from that practiced in those parts of the civilized world. The Indian, instead of parting his hands simultaneously under his chin and making the stroke outward in a horizontal direction, instead used the bold and powerful crawl. So you, you break down the book into swimming culture, and canoe culture. 
Can you talk a little bit more about African aquatic culture in general? Yeah, so one thing that is also important to realize is that Africans had developed a whole array of swim strokes. I mean, basically the strokes that we have today, except for the butterfly, we know Africans were doing. They were doing different forms of the backstroke. They were doing the form known as the freestyle or the crawl and they were doing the breaststroke. And we know that because Europeans, if they swam at the time, they tended to do this kind of dog paddle that was almost like, I mean, somewhat of a breaststroke, breast but more of a dog paddle where they were keeping their heads out of the water. And so they were impressed that Africans were actually doing these different strokes and they described them, you know, doing these different strokes. And they were really impressed by, especially their freestyle or the crawl, which later, you know, white people take credit for naming it the Australian crawl. But again, Africans and other people had developed that stroke hundreds of years ago. And so Africans, they're using these these strokes um, as forms of, or they're swimming as forms of recreation, they're for, swimming as forms of work. You know, they're diving down to set fish traps, to harvest shellfish, to dive for gold. I mean, there's places in, in Africa where gold accumulated on the bottom of rivers and they were diving for that. Cowrie shells, which are these little shells that are, they still have cultural significance, right, in the African-American community, but that was a form of currency. And so in Angola, women actually dove for those. I mean, work could be gendered. And so that was considered women's work. And so they would dive for these cowrie shells and they would harvest them, baskets full of them, and then string them together. And that became a form of currency. Another thing that Africans developed was surfing. We oftentimes think of surfing as being like Hawaiian or kind of Polynesian, but we know that Africans up and down the Atlantic coast invented surfing. And so you see accounts of African children surfing, whether they're laying down on a, on a bodyboard or actually kneeling or standing up. We, we see accounts of that. And they actually do something that's really unique with, with their surfing ability. Scholars generally believe the first account of surfing was written in Hawaii in 1778. They are only 140 years too late and some 10,000 miles off the mark. The earliest written record was penned on the Gold Coast during the 1640s. Swimming expertise enabled Africans to independently develop surfing in what are now Senegal, the Ivory Coast, Ghana, Cameroon, Liberia, and West Central Africa. Atlantic Africa shares traits that inspired surfing in Oceania, including thousands of miles of warm surf-filled waters and seagoing water people who knew ocean rhythms and surf patterns and were powerful swimmers. Surfing was only developed by societies with deep aquatic connections. It gauges African understandings of fluid environments and aquatic valuations. While Hawaiians they develop surfing. I mean, in I mean, they take surfing in a, in in a phenomenal direction, which we won't go into. Africans took surfing in a different direction. So Hawaiian surfing was much more for pleasure, for honor, had a lot of social, cultural, spiritual meanings. Africans actually used surfing to make money. So what Africans did is they used surfing as a way of understanding how waves broke. The reason being is that most of Africa, that Africa has very few natural harbors. And so in order to get from 
the land, out into the ocean, out into fisheries, out into commercial shipping lanes, Africans had to pass through the surf. And so they developed what are known as surf canoes, which are canoes that would actually catch waves. And so you're talking about a 30 foot canoe that could actually hold upwards of four or five tons of cargo or fish. And they're actually surfing those. And so they use surfing as, as a child, as a way of understanding, again, how waves broke. So they could then apply that knowledge to surfing waves ashore. So as adults, they become fishermen and they go out into these fisheries and they travel up and down the coast in these surf canoes, sometimes hundreds of that or thousands of miles, catching fish, trading it along the way and bringing it back to their home, what we call surf ports, right? Because they don't have harbors. So a surf port is basically just a coastal town that provides the same function as a, a regular harbor. And so they just, they, they create all of these surf ports and they connect themselves up and down the coast through trade and, and through fishing. Among other aquatic work, slaves were pressed into lifeguarding to reduce white drowning death rates. As George Pincard toured the Caribbean and South America, he proclaimed that swimming ability, quote, renders the Negroes especially useful in moments of distress, such as in cases of accident at sea or in the harbor, end quote. Slaveholders instructed some to watch and teach white youth, permitting them to escape arduous work. The cultural exchange around swimming that you point to that occurred, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a really important point, is that, so, in the American South, and then in the Bahamas, in Bermuda, enslavers recognized, I mean, everywhere they recognized that enslaved people were really strong swimmers. And so what they began to do is, they began to just have older men and women watch their children when their children were playing near the water. And what these men and women, these African men and women did, is that instead of just watching them on the water, like play next to the water, they realized that as, as with their own children and their own grandchildren, that in order to be safe near the water, you needed to learn how to swim. And so they began to actually teach these white children how to swim. And so Bermuda and the Bahamas became really the only two places in the Western world where you had large numbers of white people actually swimming. And it's because of their interaction with enslaved Africans. I mean, in these two islands, or archipelagos rather, you end up, there's not plantation slavery. And so the, the, the kind of the, the class-based, race class-based lines become a little bit blurred. And so while white people were sexually exploiting the enslaved, there were many instances where they recognized that their children were their children and would end up treating them as such. And so you end up with these mixed race communities where fathers, white fathers, would take their their half brothers. I mean, and they're, they're well, in some instances, actually, they're, they're, you have white men taking their half brothers or their, their, their children out with them, working with them as kind of near equals. And so you have this real kind of interesting blending of ideas of race that also facilitated this aquatic culture and and this cultural transmission where white people are actually learning this African skill and becoming really adept at it. 
by accident and design, some slave traders used sharks to deter desertion. Slavers chummed the waters with human waste and the bodies of jettisoned dead and dying Africans, swelling shark populations. In many places, it was said that sharks attacked living and dead bodies the moment they parted coastal and literal water. So I want to talk about a a, a tough subject. So we have this aquatic culture, this indigenous African aquatic culture brought into the crucible of slavery. We all hear the stories of suicide, people either being thrown overboard or choosing to jump overboard. Can you talk about your impression of that? I, I think you wrote very powerfully about what was occurring on various levels in those moments. Yeah, and that's, I think, a really important point to touch on is so you had a significant number of of enslaved people on slave ships committing suicide. I mean, I think the numbers are something like 11% of of the population on a slave ship is committing suicide, which is, I mean, in kind of a quote unquote normal population, a suicide level rate is, is below 1%. So these enslaved people, they're, they're jumping off of slave ships and they're proficient swimmers and yet they're drowning themselves. And so the question, well, I mean, one of the questions becomes is how they're doing it and then also why they're doing it. And so one of the things I think is important to realize from the slave traders perspective, they think that the slaves are trying to get back at them for some reason, right? I mean, their accounts are like, look, these slaves are, are rebellious and they're drowning themselves so that we can't profit from their bodies, from the sale of their bodies, which is not at all what's happening. And for a long time, historians just embraced kind of the the accounts of slave owners or slave traders as why these enslaved people were doing this. But it's very much an act of, of liberation. And so one thing I think it's important is to put this into African context. So for one thing, Africans believed not like kind of Christians but Africans believed that life was was circular, that one lived, they died, and they were reborn. And they believed that the water was the ancestral realm, that ancestors, the spirits of ancestors either lived at the bottom of the ocean or across the ocean where they were waiting to be reborn. And that if they died in water, that if one died in water, it facilitated kind of this transmigration right? That one would more quickly be reborn in their ancestral lands than if they died on land or on a slave ship. So yeah, they end up drowning themselves in significant numbers. I mean, and you have these accounts of them jumping overboard and slave traders throwing objects to them that they could grab onto and they refuse to grab onto them, or they would just dive overboard and apparently swim down as deep as they could and then exhale and, and drown. And so, yeah, I mean, this is part of that process. It seems to me, I mean, if you put it again in the African context where they're deliberately drowning themselves so that they could be reborn and connected with their families that they had been stolen from. And another thing too, I think I should should mention is that it wasn't just the the ocean was the, the realm of the dead, which for us might seem kind of ominous. I mean, it wasn't that at all. The ocean was filled with all sorts of deities and spirits. And so these spirits could actually guide them and, and one could evoke 
ancestral spirits to guide them. And so one would have to imagine that as an enslaved person was contemplating jumping overboard, they were actually, you know, praying to evoking the, the deities that lived in the water and the ancestral spirits to quickly facilitate this process of, of being reborn in, in, the, in their home societies. I must thank the water for affording so many hours of sublime reflection. There is perhaps no better way to consider African-descended people's aquatic traditions than while gliding through the water in swimming pools, oceans, rivers, and lakes, or sitting on a surfboard scanning Atlantic, Pacific, and Caribbean horizons for incoming waves. Much of this book was mentally transcribed while suspended in the drink. I want to take a break for a quick second. I want to talk about how you came to this book. What was the genesis? What was the, the seed idea or experience that ultimately blossomed into this work? Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it started as kind of as a, as a kid. I mean, having grown up in Southern California on the beach, you know, having spent a lot of time like in Laguna Beach as a kid back in the day when it was a much different place, um, kind of a, you know, a hippie commune or I don't know what you would call it back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And then also, you know, I mean, I learned to swim when I was a, a few months old at the YMCA in a mommy and me program. So definitely have to recognize that. Mm -hmm. But the interactions I had on beaches, right? So I grew up in, in Orange County and then also primarily in South LA County in a diverse community where there actually were a significant, um, excuse me, amount of African-Americans who could swim, right? I mean, I could swim, my cousins could swim, I had friends who could swim, yet there were these perceptions that swimming was unblack, right? I mean, I'd get it from, we'd get it from other people who, who lived in other communities and they'd be like, oh, swimming is a white activity. Uh, I mean, one of the, the things I mentioned at the end of the book is this incident in San Pedro at Cabrillo Beach, where, you know, I was down at the beach as, as a, a young kid and I was maybe six or seven. And there was a group of, of, they were all white kids I was playing with. And I said, hey, let's go swimming. And one of the older kids told me, you know, colored people don't swim. And I didn't even know what, what a colored person was. I mean, I recognized it as an insult to me and I knew I was a really strong swimmer and there weren't very many people who could beat me. And so I challenged him to a race and I beat him. And then he wanted to beat me up, right? And then I kept swimming away from him as he's chasing me. And that kind of lesson stuck, stuck with me, right? That water could be this empowering space. So even though there was this kid who was a few years older than me, and if he got his hands on me on land, he could beat me up. In the water, I was safe. And so what, I recognized that, right? And then, you know, my family, I mean, we took the road trips in this, we had this old Volkswagen van and we'd go around and, you know, there were these old ships that we'd go to up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then there was the Pilgrim down in Dana Point. And these docents would say, oh yeah, you know, the sailors, they didn't know how to swim because if they fell overboard, they wanted to just drown. And so I just thought that was odd, right? I mean, why not swim and hope the ship could come back and pick you up? But I had, and so, and, and another thing I should mention too, is so like I, we would take the bus to surf in the South Bay in like Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach. And the bus, at the time I was living in Cerritos and the bus would take us through like 
I guess it was Linwood, Compton, and I'd have my surfboard. And we were a diverse group, but I was the only black surfer. And then I'd get, you know, the, the kind of joking around like, oh, don't you know, black people don't surf. Uh, what are you carrying a, a surfboard or an airplane wing around for and stuff like that. And, you know, get the joke. So this kind of idea that black people in water don't mix was always in the back of my mind. Right. And so then when I got to college, I was a, a history major and I was working on actually enslaved people during the Civil War. And I started coming across these all these enslaved people boating and swimming. And I was like, wow, this is really cutting across the grain of, of kind of popular assumption. And I ended up looking deeper and, and looking into accounts in the Caribbean and finding more and more accounts. And then I began looking in Africa and was just blown away by all of these accounts of African people swimming and then finding accounts of Africans actually surfing and canoeing and fishing and doing all of these things that we think of being as like quote unquote unblack or a white and not just doing it but doing it really well right and doing it so well that crass as it sounds these enslaved people who were being you know these people with these skills they're being brought to the americas their bodies were worth if you adjust for inflation an enslaved underwater diver a hundred two hundred thousand three hundred thousand dollars and so their bodies were so valuable that their enslavers then end up allowing them to renegotiate the terms of their enslavement so that they're basically just functioning as yes their bodies are owned by somebody else but they're actually earning an income right when they're salvaging they're whatever they're pulling up from a, a ship in gold or silver they're getting a percentage of that and then they're buying their freedom and they're buying the freedom of their family members and friends and so these skills that we think of as being again unblack they're actually letting african descended people challenge ideas of racial subjugation in really powerful ways Divers parlayed their invaluable expertise, as well as cooperation and resistance, to gain control over their bodies and immediate circumstances. Individually and collectively, they pried concessions from enslavers, exchanging prowess for semi-independent lives of privileged exploitation. The privileges skilled slaves received were not the fruit of benevolence. Whites bestowed favors to extract wealth from slaves' limbs and minds. Diving was arduous and dangerous, taxing one's health and claiming many lives. Yet, aquanauts gained respite from field labor and received material rewards. Although divers lived existences of privileged exploitation as their expertise brought them rewards, they brought substantially more rewards for their owners. How long did it take you to write the book? Share a little bit about that process. Yeah, so it took a long time. I mean, the book took a good 10 or 12 years to write. And I think in part because there was this generation of scholars before me who had different assumptions. These assumptions that everything that that histories have already been written all the histories that are going to be told have already been written and all we need to do is to kind of nuance them and reinterpret them 
Another assumption was that, well, and I shouldn't say everybody had this belief, but so there were some historians who had this belief that we shouldn't write about topics that we're closely related to because that prejudices us, right? It, it makes us too biased. And that we shouldn't write about kind of popular subjects, right? Like swimming is kind of a popular topic. And so that shouldn't really be a history. That's not scholarly to, to talk about swimming. And so in some ways it was trying to cut across those kinds of grains. The other thing is the history of swimming was very thin. The history of black people swimming was non-existent. And so trying to situate that as a historian within the body of scholarship became tricky. And that became almost a game, if you will. And how am I gonna tell this story when I have these gatekeepers kind of regulating the ways I can tell it. And so that became, I mean, at times it became discouraging, uh, but I, I, I felt the story had to be told. And so I, I looked for ways around those, those, um, those gatekeepers. And, and, and how has the reception been in your estimation? Have you been pleased with the reception? So the reception has been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, so, so I mean, I had an, a couple, I've had a few articles come out since 2005 in some prestigious history journals. One was on enslaved swimmers and divers at the Atlantic world. And from that, like that actually got, you know, swimmers interested in my, in my scholarship and promoting swimming. And so like USA Swimming, the, the International Swimming Hall of Fame in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and some other organizations began contacting me because one of the, one of the, 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 the tragedies of this assumption of black people not swimming or swimming being unblack is that you have this disproportionately high drowning death rate. And so they began contacting me. And so I began working with organizations to dispel this, this myth in order to promote swimming for both to reduce the drowning death rate and then also to increase you know, the number of competitive black swimmers. But also scholarly, it's been really receptive. I mean, the book, since it, it came out, I mean, almost instantly, like I was getting a lot of really positive reception, you know, as far as book reviews, the sales have been really well. I received the Harriet Tubman Prize from the New York Public Library, which is a really prestigious award. And 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 it was really sentimental because it was received by the Schoenberg Center, which is in Harlem. My dad grew up in Harlem, a few blocks from the Schoenberg Center, so I know that that really well. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's been overwhelmingly positive. It's such a foundational work. The writing and the scholarship on swimming was thin, and you said the scholarship on African swimming was non-existent. In your estimation, how do future scholars build on what you've done? You know, it's, in some ways it's hard to say, right? And I don't, and, and in some ways, I'm actually a little bit reluctant to answer because I don't want to say to people, this is the way you should be looking at it. I think people need to, to, to go in with their eyes wide open, right? Because that's one of the ways that we have these breakthroughs is that oftentimes people approach topics myopically. But what I would say is, I mean, one of the things that I've found is that when we think about how colonization, what facilitated colonization and, and plantation slavery, we think of terrestrial, we think of the land-based. I actually, one of the next projects, the next book I hope to write is on how swimming actually financed plantation slavery. 
which may seem really bold, but let me explain it to you. What, what I found kind of as I was finishing writing this book was that, so what the Spanish would do, let me back up. What the Spanish would do is they would amass gold and silver. They'd force indigenous people and Africans to mine gold and silver. Then they take all that, that wealth and they'd amass it in Havana, Cuba. And then once a year, between typically August and October, they send out these treasure fleets from Havana back to Spain. And they would sail through the Bahamas or up along the Florida coast. Now, this is hurricane season. And so sometimes an entire fleet would go down in a hurricane. And what the English realized was, you know, what had taken a year for the Spanish to amass, they could assemble dive teams of 20 to 60 enslaved Africans, and they could strip Spanish treasure ships of upwards of 30, 40 tons in a few weeks. And if you talk about, well, what's the, what's the return on that, right? I mean, you, you're talking about over a trillion dollars, sometimes $3 trillion in just, if you convert like kind of what's an ounce of silver worth today, what's an ounce of gold worth today, so, you know, they're, they're producing spectacular amounts of money. And some of that money gets wasted. I mean, we see from the accounts that some of these salvage, salvagers, black and white, like they take these Spanish doubloons back, back home and they bling out their houses. Like some of them, they have candlesticks and they just solder doubloons all over the candlesticks and all over their mirrors and they buy cannons and they buy stuff. But like, you can only waste so much. Like if you get, if you get, if you're in an, a, a slave owner in, in Bermuda, you know, there's only so much you can buy. And then what do you do? And so what they did is they began to establish plantations in Jamaica, in Barbados, in Antigua. And the same thing happens. I mean, we're talking, so, so with these salvage divers, what actually happens is that, or what seems to happen is that every port seems to have had four or five enslaved salvage divers and they would be working in a port, whether it's Charleston, Kingston, Jamaica, Bridgetown, Barbados, when items would fall off of a ship, they'd call these divers out and they'd go and salvage it. When the English would find a Spanish treasure ship, they'd bring together all these dive teams and they'd strip that ship. And so what I argue is, what I'm suspecting is that much of this wealth that the English are taking, were taking from the Spanish was being used to, to buy plantations and to buy enslaved Africans. I mean, I already have seen that in the records, right? When they're, the, the, the men who are successful, the white salvagers who are successful, they're buying plantations, they're buying enslaved Africans, they're buying cattle, they're buying all of the things that are necessary to establish plantations elsewhere in, in the Americas. And so the kind of a, a tragedy, if you will, is that this African wisdom is being exploited by enslavers who are then kind of perpetuating this, this racialized subjugation and violence in order to profit them and in order to profit colonial powers. I see that sounds equally fascinating as well. Now, now, where are you, now, where are you in that process? Early stages, year or two, where does it stand? So it's the early stages. I mean, this is going to be a, a pretty big endeavor because I'd have to travel to a number of archives in the Caribbean and to, to England in order to, to, to shift through this. I have published one article on it that I think I posted on my, my UC Merced website, but I have published one article where I make this argument. But yeah, I do think that 
that this is going to be, you know, a few years in the making. And again, for future scholars, talk about that, the work that you have to do to actually do this book. What is a day in the life of Kevin Dawson doing those things? So it's, I mean, part of it is, I mean, look, I'm studying the enslavement of African people, which is, is grim and it's depressing. I mean, it can be incredibly rewarding, but at the same time, I mean, you're reading about in, the, in these archives, racial subjugation. And so a lot of times I try and, and, and mix it up and find some pleasure in what I'm doing. And so the kind of the quicker, easier way of doing the research would, to be, would be to go to London, to the National Archives, and do all of my research there. But a lot of the, the material that's in the National Archives in London is also in the formal colonial archives in the Caribbean. So in Barbados, in Jamaica, in Antigua. And so what I've done is go there and you know, before I had kids, my wife and I, we would go into the archives, she would come in, help me, and then we'd go to the beach and we'd, you know, go diving and swimming and surfing and, 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 and stuff like that. So trying to mix it up, you know, a lot of it too, it's, it's archival. It's, it's like I said, I mean, it's, it's reading through a lot of published accounts. I mean, many of the accounts that had not been published are now being published. So even the ones that I had to go see first in the archives, now they're, they're published. And so you can find them in libraries or even online in like Google Books. So that's a, a good way for listeners to, to start out is, is looking in, in Google Book and, and going through those accounts. I, you know, another thing that I did is when I found people doing something, talking to people, like not just taking the historical approach of going to the library, which is, I mean, it can be nice because the library is, you know, air conditioned and you get a nice chair and stuff like that, but actually going out and talking and interacting with people. So like when I was in, in West Africa and Ghana, the Ivory Coast, Togo, Benin, Senegal, you know, going and, and seeing how those canoes are made, how those surf canoes are made, talking to the canoe makers, uh, going out with fishermen on their, on their boats and seeing the techniques that they're using, because a lot of them are, are still using the same techniques. When I was in the Caribbean, you know, talking to people, I mean, I, I met one time a, a woman, my wife and I, we, at the hotel we were staying at, and her dad was a fisherman. And so I ended up talking with him about fishing techniques. And, you know, I have to be a little bit careful, but he also engaged in poaching things, you know, in the off season. And so he took me out and showed me how he would actually find octopuses, identify them just in like kind of the tide pools and how he'd poach them because those were considered a delicacy and how he'd, you know, the techniques that he would, that he was using. And those are techniques that have just been passed down from generation to generation orally. And so, I mean, yeah, taking those times to that time to go out and, you know, to just always have the conversations with people. Um, a lot of times, a lot of people go into an archive or approach a source uh, myopically kind of, and are, are kind of laser focused on one thing, but I tend to cast kind of a broad net and just bring everything in and realize that at some future date, you know, something that somebody might've said to me or something that I might've read that seemed irrelevant or that was like kind of interesting, but I wouldn't know how to bring it all together. You know, years later, I might have three or four different things or five different accounts that make that one part of a critical mass of knowledge then that, that helps me better understand the past and these, these African aquatics. So where are the places that you visited in producing 
this particular book? How, how, how many places did you have to go to, to, to have those conversations and to do that work? Oh, it was a lot. I mean, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Washington, DC, New York, Connecticut, the Huntington Library in California, Hawaii, uh, Barbados, Jamaica, Antigua, Ghana, Togo, Benin, the Ivory Coast, Nigeria, the Gambia, Senegal, uh, London, the Netherlands, Italy. Um, you know, the thing is, is I, I went everywhere there were where there were black people in water, which is everywhere in the world. I mean, we might think that the black people weren't everywhere, but like everywhere I've gone, I found accounts of black people diving, you know, in, in the places where I would have never thought. I mean, the Europeans end up hiring Africans, hiring Africans, right? Not enslaving them, but hiring them and bringing them up to salvage wrecks in Scandinavia, in London, in Italy, in the Netherlands. And so, you know, a lot of times you're just walking through. I mean, I was, I was at the Vatican, <laughs> believe it or not, a couple of years ago and just walking through and thinking, you know, this is the Vatican. I'm just gonna see all these religious objects. And as I was leaving, there was this incredible collection of African canoes. They're they're known as what they're known as model canoes or toy canoes because when a canoe maker is going to make a canoe, the fisherman or the maritime trader would actually make a little model of what they want the canoe to look like, and it could range from you know eight inches to a foot or so long. And after that was used as a model, they're oftentimes used as toys by by kids, and there on this staircase, there's like 20 African canoes, uh, which I was totally blown away by. And so it's just, you know, you got to always have your eyes wide open. And, and, what, and what was the context for that display? Was that something that was there on a regular basis or was it a, an exhibit of some kind or, or sort of, what you know, was I that? couldn't even tell you it, it was, it was a permanent collection. Um, there was this other stuff in the same kind of area. I mean, it's as you're leaving the Vatican and going into like the gift shop, there was a collection of Polynesian, full-scale Polynesian canoes and things, which first caught my attention. But no, I mean, it's just like somebody must have donated them to the Vatican and they said, oh, this is a great place to put them. You know, it's not going to distract from, you know, from David and, you know, that other stuff. But that's what I remember about the Vatican, right? I mean, I, I remember the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but like, yeah, that's what, what drew me in. That is fascinating. That's also a good transition point to part two of the book, which you describe as canoe culture. So how would you describe African canoe culture? So, yeah, so African canoe culture is, I think it, it again is, dispels myths, right? I mean, Africans made dugout canoes. So it's basically taking a canoe, a tree, chopping it down, hollowing it out, and that's a boat. People might think of that today, a dugout canoe for a lot of people suggest kind of primitive um, culture. These canoes were actually incredibly sophisticated. There's a reason why they made dugout canoes. One is because a dugout canoe is incredibly versatile. It's the, these canoes, I mean, some of them were as large as European ships. I mean, the ships that were arriving in, um, in Africa in the 14 and 1500s, they're 30 feet long, 40 feet long. 
we're talking about canoes that are over 100 feet long and could hold <clears throat> tons of cargo, over, 100 and, over 120 warriors in war canoes. And so some of the things they could do, I mean, one of the, the, the benefits of a canoe is you can't sink it. I mean, a Western framed boat, if it fills with water, it sinks. Dugout canoe, if it fills with water, it'll stay at about the water line and you can bail it out even in the middle of the ocean and keep on going. So there's that. The other thing that they did is they're not always just a dugout canoe. I mean, some of them are a canoe, but then some of them, what they did is they would actually take a canoe, they'd, they'd make a dugout canoe, then they'd cut it in half longwise, insert a keel into it, which makes it wider and stronger. And then they'd actually attach ribbing to the inside of it the same way as a Western style boat. So it had the same, if you looked at it from the top down, in many ways, it looked just like a Western boat that it had a frame and all, but it's still unsinkable. And so one of the benefits too of these canoes is you can spin them around on, a, on its center axis, which you can't do with a, with a Western framed boat. It lets you paddle it forward. So you see what you're coming to other than, unlike a rowboat, which you're faced backwards. And so this gave them canoemen a lot more kind of versatility in what they could do. If they're in battle, if they're in rapids, if they're surfing a wave, and then one of the other benefits of these canoes is they're, they're incredibly fast. They're much faster than, say, a, a ship boat or one of the rowboats that would be on a, on a Western ship. They're fast enough to catch a wave, which a, a Western framed boat could not do. And so they could actually catch and surf waves. And so they're incredibly like versatile boats. They could have sails. I mean, we might think that Africans did not sail prior to Europeans. That's another misassumption. I mean, Africans were sailing. And so you have people actually, the Fanti from what is now Ghana today, were sailing, were sailing as far south as Angola. So a thousand miles in one direction. And they're not going in a straight line, straight south. They're actually following the coast and then they would take, and then they would cut across. So they'd follow the Gulf of Guinea. So they're going to now what's like Togo, Nigeria, Cameroon, the Congo on their way to Angola trading along the way and then from Angola going straight uh, straight across open ocean to return home. And they're not the only ones who were doing so. I mean, you know, you had peoples all up and down the coast from Senegal, Liberia, conducting long distance trade along the coast. But then also because these canoes are versatile, they could be taken up rivers. Um, they could be taken through rapids. They were light so that if they were going up one river and they wanted to go to another river that didn't intersect, they could actually carry it. And so they could carry it overland. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of benefits to these, to these dugout canoes, which Europeans also recognized. So when Europeans arrived, what they basically did is they hired African canoemen to bring virtually everything between ship and shore. So it's Africans that were this kind of central component. Again, the, most, most of the, the, the coastline had waves breaking on it. These European boats couldn't cross through the surf or had a, a difficulty crossing through the surf. Mm -hmm. So they're hiring these Africans to bring, I mean, the, the 12 million enslaved Africans who were brought out of Africa, most of them spent time in one of these African dugout canoes being taken from land out to sea. Most of the goods that were brought from European ships to the shores of Africa were brought in these canoes. And this happens all the way up into the, um, up into the 1950s you know, until the, the point that harbors were actually constructed. My grandfather was in World War II. He was in the Coast Guard. He manned these, uh, the invasion craft. But he told me, you know, when they were in Senegal, that actually canoemen 
were bringing African troops from Senegal and from the Ivory Coast out onto his troop transport. And that's how they were getting there. So they were still being used. I mean, they were being used up into World War II to, to defeat the Germans. Amazing. So let's talk about the transition of that culture into the Americas around canoe culture and canoe making. Yeah, so one of the other things to, to understand is like what a canoe is made out of, what these dugout canoes were made out of. So they're primarily made out of what are known as silk cottonwood trees, which are these trees with a really tall, straight trunk, and they have these buttress roots that flare off of them. And so this, the wood of a silk cottonwood tree, it's incredibly light, it's resistant to rot. I mean, it, it, it's resistant to bug infestation. And so it's Africans knowing, right, that these trees are ideally suited for marine purposes, that if you leave them in the water for a long time, they're not gonna get waterlogged, they're not gonna get um, damaged by the water, they're not gonna get infested with termites or other wood boring insects. And so they bring that knowledge to the Americas and they begin to make them out, to make dugout canoes in the Americas out of silk cottonwood trees. Now enslavers, these silk cottonwood trees, they're not really good for anything else. They are not good for construction because they're not strong. If you try and make timber out of them, they're not good for fire because they don't produce a lot of heat if you burn them. So enslavers basically allowed enslaved Africans to, to, to make these dugout canoes in their free time. And so what these Africans did is they make these canoes and they began doing the same thing they were doing in Africa. In their free time, you know, their enslavers aren't giving them enough food to, to, to eat or it's bland food. Um, so they go out and they go fishing and they start engaging in trade. And so in the Americas, if you go to any of the, the ports cities in the Americas or any of the urban areas along, not necessarily a port, but any of the, the, the kind of coastal urban areas, all of the fresh seafood that white people ate was provided to them by enslaved Africans who sold it to them in their free time, right? So enslaved people, they're working for their owners during the week. They get a half day off on Saturday, a full day off on Sunday. And instead of just relaxing, they're out working, you know, they're hustling, they're they're producing seafood, they're producing craft goods, you know, they're making furniture, they're making all kinds of objects, and then they're selling it to, to white people. And then they're using that money to buy possessions that were going to make their lives more enjoyable and provide themselves with a sense of meaning and purpose and value. And so, yeah, I mean, they're doing that. And then enslavers realize that these Africans had a skill that could be exploited. And so they begin to actually sometimes hire Africans to make canoes for them. At other times, they instruct them to make canoes for them. And then these canoes that these enslavers own become central to plantation slavery in that the cash crops that slaves were producing, so the rice, the indigo, the cotton, tobacco, uh, chocolate, that's being loaded into these dugout canoes and taken by enslaved canoemen to ports or to ships that might anchor in a river and then it's being shipped overseas. And so they become this, this central component. They link the plantation to overseas markets. And that's what's really important. It's that, again, this African knowledge becomes central in the success of, of, of colonization. And, and also the United States. I mean, I'm not just talking about colonization. I mean, this continues in the United States up to the Civil War, um, the use of these dugout canoes and these enslaved canoe makers. 
Canoe making was a widely distributed skill, and canoe makers shipped canoes considerable distances. Craft made for coastal waters were sometimes constructed 60 or 80 miles from shore. Professionals camped in groves while dugouts were carved. In areas possessing rich timber reserves, semi-permanent and permanent villages were established. Roughly finished dugouts were carved in the forest before shipment to riverside centers for completion. In the Upper Congo, quote, the tree was felled and roughly shaped in the forest and then floated to the town of the maker. Why, why do you think that is not talked about as much or realized more? You know, I think it's, unfortunately, it's deliberate erasures in a couple ways. I mean, one is that historians, so while enslavers, they understood how to use race and racism to their benefit. They understood African ethnicity. They understood that people from different ethnic groups had skills that could be profitably exploited. So enslavers in South Carolina realized that, I mean, one, one cash crop, I mean, we, don't, we might not realize it now, but South Carolina was the wealthiest colony and state in America. What made South Carolina wealthy was rice production. And the knowledge for how to produce rice was introduced from enslaved Africans from the Senegambia, from Senegal and the Gambia. They introduced African rice growing techniques. And their owners realized that they needed to understand African ethnicity, that if they wanted to buy Africans who knew how to grow rice, you know, right after they had already established plantations and they wanted to, to diminish the learning curve, they're not going to buy Angolans. They're not going to buy people from Nigeria. They're going to buy people from the Senegambia. And so they understood ethnicity and how it could benefit them. They also understood that people from certain regions of Africa had, had particular maritime skills. And so they're exploiting them. But then you come to the end of slavery, the, the 1870s, the 1880s, and the kind of the first generations of historians who are telling the story of the American South. And these men were the former, um, their, their fathers were enslavers. And so they're writing stories of Africans as being kind of children-like, of being unsophisticated, of their fathers treating them like children and basically taking care of them. And so, and, and, and suggesting that these Africans were inherently dumb. So what they began to do is to change the narrative. So while their fathers would have recognized the African skills that, that these enslaved peoples had, what, what the children began to do, and then what early 20th century historians began to do is to say that the knowledge and skills that Africans had, if it was a, if it was like, say, a dugout canoe, that that wasn't African knowledge, that that was indigenous Amerindian knowledge, American Indian knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so what they began to argue was that American Indians taught Africans how to make dugout canoes. And so the dugout canoes you see in plantations were actually designed after American Indian um, dugout canoes. And so in writing the book, I had to actually go back and look at the sources, look at the images, look at the descriptions, right? The, the, the written descriptions of what an American Indian canoe looked like and what an African canoe looked like and compare that to what the canoes on these plantations look like. And the canoes on the plantation look like an African canoe. They don't look like an American Indian canoe at all. 
So there's there's that. I mean, then the history is also, it's not just the canoe and, and the African origins of the canoe that's being written, that had been for a long time written out, but also the mariners. So if you look at the kind of the histories of the South that were written in the 1960s, 1970s, into the 1980s, they do talk about, you know, all these boats, all these dugout canoes, you know, coming out of Baltimore and the Chesapeake in the South Carolina Low Country, in, in the Georgia Low Country, but they never talk about race. And the assumption then is that it's white people who are crewing these vessels. But if you go back and actually read the primary accounts, right, the accounts that were written by the people who, that historians are using, right, you see that no, it's actually enslaved Africans who are the ones that are out on these vessels as working as fishermen, working as kind of coastal traders and, and things like that. And so it's, it is deliberate erasures, I mean, over time that, that just relegates Africans and makes it seem like black people were not at all involved in, in the process, whether it's from the technology and the knowledge and wisdom to the actual application of that knowledge and wisdom. Responding to environmental and human pressures, some riverine and lacustrine societies were built upon the water. Water overwhelmed floodplains during much of the year, compelling people to raise the earth into islets or build structures on stilts. Residents swam between dwellings as they tended fish traps and went to agricultural fields. Peoples of the middle Congo River Basin adapted to the ebb and flow of biannual flooding that transformed the region into Africa's largest swamp. Amphibious societies existed as people fished and farmed during different parts of the year. Some societies moved onto waterways to guard against slave raiders. During the 18th and 19th centuries, diverse peoples erected the stilt village of Ganvier in what is now Benin. They created the Tofino ethnicity, meaning men on water. Ganvier translates to safe at last. Today, Roughly 70,000 water people live in the area, existing primarily on fish. In this amphibian environment, canoeing and swimming were the only means of traveling. Quick aside, curious if you've seen the Netflix series, High on the Hog, which talks about both of these issues. Have you seen that series on Netflix? I haven't. I haven't seen it yet. It was very interesting, so it actually ties in directly into what you just spoke about. Yeah, that, yeah, that town, Ganvier, mm-hmm. which would I've been to, and it's it's a, a cool place to see, because, I mean, so they actually build that town on the lake because the fawn of Dahomey, Dahomey was one of the most powerful, actually, kingdoms in the world. I mean, it's important to understand. I mean, if you talk about the might of, of these African kingdoms, Dahomey is one of the most powerful kingdoms, and its warriors were incredibly formidable men and women but they had this belief that you could not cross water in order to wage warfare and so these people build from different ethnic groups they build this village in the middle of this uh, of that lake which which kind of brings me i think to something else too which is that as african people are bringing these skills to the americas and enslavers are appropriating them they never take full control over them right 
So Africans do retain, I mean, these abilities and they use them for themselves. And so they use swimming and canoeing as forms of recreation. You know, at the end of the day, they go into the water, they swim, they bathe, they cool off, but they also use it to escape. I mean, one thing I think that's really important to, is, is to think about is how they escape. And so one of the things that I'm working on right now that I've been working on as, you know, and COVID has limited what I can do. Mm -hmm. All of us. Yeah. And so it's forced me to be creative. And so I've been working with some colleagues on what are known as maritime maroons. And maritime maroons are enslaved people who escape by water. So they could escape on a Western ship, um, you know, stowaway. Um, they could steal a ship. I mean, some of them stole ships. Robert Smalls, for example, during the Civil War. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, others actually used African knowledge to escape. So they built dugout canoes and they end up sailing. Some of them attempt to sail to Africa. Some sail, you know, from Florida to the Bahamas. I mean, so as the English or, I mean, these, the the Caribbean is, is constantly in flux as far as like, what's going on, where slavery exists, where it doesn't exist. You know, in one place, the conditions of slavery might be really severe in another, less severe. And so people from like, say, Jamaica might escape to, to Cuba or to Puerto Rico where slavery was less severe. And so what we have found is that enslaved people were fleeing probably by the tens of thousands in dugout canoes and then also on surfboards, believe it or not, and wow. swimming. So they're actually taking surfboards and swimming between Caribbean islands. And some of these islands are only a mile apart, but some of them are 20 miles apart and they're actually swimming. And we know they make it because in some instances, whether they're escaping by swimming, by canoeing or by surfboard, their enslavers go to the island and find them and say, hey, I, this is my enslaved person. I want him back. And I mean, the English are usually the ones doing this and the Spanish are saying no. They're here and we're not giving them back to you. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really important to understand that, that Africans, look, the slave trade creates this, this kind of watershed of humanity and mm -hmm. culture that channels African, African people and our cultures and our values to the Americas. But these enslaved people were not complacent and they end up creating their own currents that take them out of slavery to freedom or to in, when they don't have the option of freedom to societies where the conditions of slavery were less severe. We're doing an episode with Timothy Walker, who's at the University of Massachusetts, who wrote a book, Sailing to Freedom, Maritime Dimensions of the Underground Railroad. Yeah. So, so so Tim and I, I mean, we're, we're friends and okay. uh, yeah, so, so definitely say hi to him. And I, I appreciate his, his scholarship and it is a really important work. I mean, he's, he's taking it a little bit different direction than I am okay. or that, than the, the project that I'm working on. And so his book is focusing on how enslaved people, I mean, he's making the argument that most of the enslaved people who escaped out of North America did so aboard ships, right? Aboard a Western style ship that they're going that either complacent you know, kind of freedom-loving ship captains are, are sneaking them aboard or they're stowing themselves away and things like that. And so he's authored this really compelling book that I think is really important for understanding American freedom and American slavery. And so, yeah, and so my scholarship is, is 
I mean, he's a maritime historian in the kind of the traditional, more traditional sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a slight at all. Right. Um, whereas I'm a maritime historian in kind of the African context. Um, and so the people who I'm working with are also interested in it in this, this kind of African context. But together, I mean, they're, they're both really important. And so, uh, yeah, that'll be a really important piece you come out with too. So to, to conclude, I'm curious if you have any thoughts is there a particular episode or a particular event or a particular person or exchange that in some way summarizes what you have discovered? I, I think the moment for me is this, this instance where it takes place in Jamaica, in southern, uh, southern Jamaica on the Milk River, where this English traveler in the early 1800s he go, he's going around the island with a group of planters and maybe it's 15 or so white men. And they come across these enslaved women who are in the river naked, washing their clothes, washing themselves, swimming about. And they're kind of close to shore. Some are out in the river, but some are closer to shore. Some are on shore. And these men think they've uh, I'll put it this way. I mean, a cruel rite of passage, rape was a cruel rite of passage for most enslaved women, right? I mean, it was the signal, the signifying event that they were no longer girls. And so they, this group of men, they think that they're going to, you know, have the sexual encounter with these women. Well, the women run into the water. And when they get about 30 feet from shore, they stop and they turn around and they begin swimming around in a seductive way, knowing that the white men can't swim. And one of the women begins to sing this song about uh, a, a white preacher, an English preacher who crosses, goes to Jamaica to basically have sex with enslaved women. And the author of the account describes the women as proserapine, right? Who is this goddess? Who was raped by Hades, indicating you know the intent of these English men, and so these women they're they're sliding around in the water, right? You have these kind of two seductive elements of water and nude women, and they can make out the silhouettes of their bodies, but not any of kind of the intimate details. And they're saying, if you want to have sex with me, come in the water, knowing they can't swim. And to me, I think that's really kind of a defining moment because you have these women who have been stolen. I mean, these are African women. We don't know the ethnic groups that they're from, but they're African women who've been stolen from their home communities. They understand the cruelties of slavery and they understand that water can be the sanctuary from this, these cruelties, that just 20 feet of water, right, can separate them from, can save them from, uh, you know, otherwise, horrendous sexual exploitation. And I think that's what's really the empowering thing of water, right? And, and, and also how I get the title, of, that, in, that example is not the instance that gives, me the, that gives my book the title Undercurrents of Power, but you, know, you have what you think is the power on the surface, and also these subtleties that are undercutting that power and how Africans fully understood that their knowledge and skills empowered them.
And so, yeah, for me, it would be that instance. Swimming equally allowed family members living on separate slaveholdings to visit each other, with or without their owner's approval. Richard, a Louisiana husband in an away marriage, would slip off and paddle or swim across the bayou to see his wife Betty. His enraged enslaver, quote, told the patrollers every time they caught Richard on the plantation where Betty lived to beat him half to death. The patrollers had caught Richard many times and had beat him mighty bad. Still, he swam. So in closing, so I know that you are doing some things to address African-American swimming culture today. I know that you have some thoughts about that and some work that you are doing around that. Would you like to share some of that? Yeah, so today um, the Center for Disease Control actually has labeled the black drowning death rate an epidemic, right? The U.S. Center for Disease Control. Uh, We don't know statistically how much more likely black people are to drown than white people as a, at the national level because all the statistics are at more the local level the, the city the county levels but if you go through and you look at like those city and county records black people are six to t- ten times more likely to drown than white people if you drill down a little bit deeper young black men are much more likely to drown than young white men and and young black women are, are much more likely to drown than 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 uh than white women, but black males are are particularly prone to drowning because of, you know, the inability to swim and then probably, you know, trying to impress people or who knows what, but there's different reasons. But one thing I think that's important to understand is that historically, I mean, while African-Americans have had this long history of swimming, that racial segregation in the Jim Crow era has denied African-Americans places to learn to swim, whether it was public swimming pools or beaches. And so what ends up happening is that by the 1960s, we have this disproportionately high drowning death rate. And part of it is due then, I mean, in the 1960s, you also have the development of this myth that swimming is unblack. Um, There's a few different perceptions. I mean, I've heard a number of different stories, some of them that, you know, the slave trade traumatized African-Americans, creating this generational scar that has discouraged Black people from from learning to, to, or from interacting intimately with the water and learning to swim. There's another myth that Black people's bones are denser than white people's. Both are, are incorrect. But still, Black people are much more likely to drown. And so, what I've done is I've been working with different organizations. A lot of them are kind of local grassroots organizations, as well as filmmakers and, and the such. And to go in and to discuss swimming as our African heritage, that this is not something that is unblack, but that this is part of our cultural heritage. This is part of our legacy. And you have this period of time beginning in the 19 or the 18 kind of 80s, 1890s, where, and then going up into the 19, well, even into the present, where we've been denied access to water and it's created these these problems, but that we need to reclaim kind of our cultural heritage, that we need to get back out in the water 
and swim and surf. And so a lot of it, yeah, it's been academic for me. I haven't actually offered swim lessons, but I have offered surf lessons. I mean, so there's been some some opportunities where I've been able to go out with kids at, uh, for example, at Santa Monica, Nick Gabaldon Day, which is in June. And it's um, Nick Gabaldon was a, a black surfer, an early black surfer. And there's a plaque in his, it's, it's commemorating the inkwell, which is to the south of the Santa Monica Pier. And um, there's a mention of, if, if I'm remembering the plaque correctly, of Nick Gabaldon, but yeah. That's some of the work that I've been that I've been doing. I'm happy to sign up my daughters. If you ever decide to do a class, you have two people in it already. So um, <laughs> sounds good. Sounds good. I'll let you know the next time we do it. And also, too, you share in the book Nell Carter at the Mandela event making mm-hmm. a joke. Would you share that just real quick? Because I think it speaks to what you're talking about. How some African Americans view our swimming culture. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so when I was, uh, you know, I was a kid, I was, I think, a sophomore in high school, or somewhere between my sophomore and junior year of high school. I forget what year it was. It must have been like 1990 or so. And Nelson Mandela was freed. Mm-hmm. He went on this freedom tour. And I was fortunate enough that my mom took me to see it at the LA Coliseum. And so, I mean, it had all these performers, um, entertainers, black entertainers from Los Angeles, or Los Angeles area. And Nell Carter got up, the the late comedian, she gets mm-hmm. up and and I think it was the first joke she's told. She said, wow, it's a good thing black folks can't swim because otherwise there would be nobody here to greet Mandela. Um, and everybody got the joke, right? Everybody laughed. And I laughed, but it was still kind of a sore spot because I was like, well, you know, I, I'm actually a pretty good swimmer and surfer. But yeah, I mean, it, it I think it strikes directly to this idea, right, that black people don't swim and how we can make fun of ourselves you know, because of this, this perception. Well, um, I just want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you have done all the time and energy that you put into it. You said it took over a decade to produce the work, took travel all around the world, diving into archives. Scholars like yourself do not get enough thanks and appreciation for the work that you're doing. So I just want to say again, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for taking the time today. The book was informative, enlightening, and in some ways actually paradigm shifting. So to speechless about it because it's not building on knowledge I already know. It's introducing something that sadly is new to me. And so I just want to thank you for that. Your work matters. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Recollect is a production of Recollect Media. To learn more about contemporary Pan-African aquatic culture, be sure to check out the show notes. To purchase undercurrents of power and to support independent booksellers, please visit our collection at bookshop.org or visit penpress at upen.edu. To learn more about our other shows and events, including the first annual Pan-African Food Festival, please visit our website at www.recollect.media. History is not just his story or her story or my story. It is our story. It is with us. It is alive and it will survive as long as the truth shall live. Never forget, never ever 
forget who we are.